But let me just explain a little bit about the kind of work that I do. My work is practice-based. When I was an undergraduate the uh, a student, uh, my contemporary theology lecturer said to me, study people who actually change things and be a theologian who changes things. So what I got into uh, as, a, as a graduate student was the idea that theology should be practiced. You don't just practice it within church, you practice it within the social world. And I got into student politics when I was younger, and then politics as a graduate student, and I'm still involved in politics um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an academic. So the way in which I've gone about doing my work as practice-based is through media. So when I was younger and prettier, it happens to all of us, I used to make films for Channel 4, BBC, Discovery, and that's where most people know me from. I've made over 20 films. I have one more in the bag that may get commissioned over the next few weeks, and you, I'll let you know if that happens. I'll put a, a note in, but that's about it. Since um, 2016, I've been working on audio culture and music in particular. So the way that I work is you go out and do the stuff, and then you reflect on it theologically afterwards, rather than thinking about it and ending up not doing a great deal, if you know what I mean, you know how that works um, uh, in the academy. So what I'm going to talk to you about tonight is a project time three quarters of the way through, which is about rethinking gospel music and the heritage of gospel music and the politics of gospel. You with me so far? Because you've done very well coming out tonight. You could be listening to the cricket. West Indies are praying. Chris Gale is batting, well, he's finished batting, hasn't he? Um, you know, the football's on, Manchester City. So, I'm, so coming to see me instead of Manchester City, I'm very, very pleased that you've, you've, you've done that. So I'm, uh, let's, uh, let's start with a little bit of music. Winding down. It's never forever. Come on and pick up. If you did it for me, listen. Though he slay me, though he try me, come on, lift up your, lift up your voice. Okay, that's Van Lee, Morgan, and New Ye. They won the Best Gospel Act 2017, the last time there were Mobos, the music of black origin. The great thing about New Ye and Van Lee Morgan, which is the great thing about gospel music, is that it is what we call expressive. It has expressive physicality. It suggests that to worship God, you do it within your, your whole being, within your whole body. And if you have a cosmology, a worldview that says that the divine possesses all of you, you express it that way. It also deals effectively with what we call the kinetic orality of the black church tradition. Now, church tradition, we like to talk a lot. Everybody talks. That's why we have extemporaneous prayer and call and response as well, traditions within the church, you know, so you can never just go to a Pentecostal church and sit down quietly. That's, that's against the religion, you know? You have to have call and response. So it represents the best of that. 
but it's also problematic. And I'll tell you why it's problematic, because it also signifies the weakening of gospel music. And it weakens, the weakening of gospel music can be described in two ways. One, because it is very much individual in terms of what people are singing about. The subjects explore the individual's relationship with God and talk very little about any kind of communal experience. Not only that, but they deal with, a, they have a behavioralist approach. So how do you deal with the problems that you may face as a Christian? Well, you work them out individually through piety, through working out your own individual faith. Now, that's problematic if you know anything about the history of gospel music. Because one of the major contributors of gospel music are the spirituals, African-American spirituals. The African-American spirituals are communal, because they were sung by groups of people, predominantly rural people, and they were also deeply political. The spirituals had a double meaning. On the surface, they may have been talking about stealing away, steal away, steal away, but steal away was always sung when, uh, to, as coded language for either a secret meeting or telling you how to escape off the plantation. Songs like Wade in the Water wasn't about being baptized. It was giving you the coded route to make it from the plantation to freedom. So the spirituals always had a double meaning. Once um, that uh, the oppression was removed, so the meaning disappeared. So I'm kind of intrigued to how, you know, the question I wanted to ask myself was, is it possible to go back to the intention of the spirituals and revive gospel music so it deals more effectively, engages more effectively with the socio-political world as the spirituals did? You with me? So that was the, that was the challenge that I kind of set myself. Uh, oops, let's, let's see if we let, let move, move along. So on the one hand, we've got this great tradition, but on the other hand, it lacks the kind of political intent. So what I wanted to do was take some of the ideas from my previous work in theology, uh, political theology, liberation theology, and see whether or not we can have a dialogue with gospel music and create something new. What I'm going to share with you today is the, the fruit of that labor, and I'm going to play you some of the, the music that I've produced later on. Okay, the big problem then, the big problem for gospel music in Britain isn't just that it's lost its way, I argue. I argue that the problem is it's still deeply rooted in colonial theology and colonial Christianity. So what it needs to do is decolonize itself in order to more effectively engage with the socio-political world and absorb the social world into its, into its, um, its musicality. So what's wrong with colonial Christianity? Oh, I don't know if we can talk about this stuff in this post-Brexit age where people are very, very sensitive about English nationalism. Oh, don't mention Winston Churchill. Well, colonialism, look, you know, the problem is we don't teach this stuff in school. It's part of it. When I went to school, you know, we, um, uh, we kind of moved in history from, uh, you know, from 1492 to um, uh, the World, World War I. You know, as if nothing happened in, in the middle. And suddenly when I went to university, I realized there was this British history that happened overseas that nobody talked about. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a bit like talking about the war. Don't talk about the war. I'm from Coventry, you see. Don't talk about the war. Don't talk about colonialism. Colonialism is an integral part of British history. It's, it, it is if, you're, if you look like me. 
You know, my name is Robert Beckford. That's not my real name. That's my slave name. Beckford was a slave-owning family. You know, my real name would be something like Zuhundula Malekwa if it wasn't for British colonialism. That's the name of a friend of mine, by the way. That's not a name that I was uh, given by anybody. So look, the problem for me is that the, the, the black church tradition and gospel music is still very much bound up with colonial theology. So what's wrong with colonial theology? Colonial theology did two things that were deeply problematic. It colluded with the racial terror of slavery. In order to missionize enslaved people, the church had to compromise. The Anglican church had to compromise. Even the good old Methodists had to make compromises. The Moravians, the only people who come out with a little bit of credit are the Baptists. There you go. Praise Jesus for the Baptists. Baptists come out with a little bit of credit. You know, so this is, um, uh, this is a quote from uh, the head of the Moravian church when he goes to Jamaica in the early part of the 18th century and he sees what's happening with plantation society and this is at the point where you know the British have just introduced what's called seasoning the first five years of a slave you brutally break them in in order to make them much more not just pliable to work but also to sell on to the Americas and he says to them look be true to your husbands and wives and obedient to your masters the Lord has made all ranks kings masters servants and slaves God has punished the first Negroes by making them slaves and your conversion will make you free not from the control of your masters but simply from your wicked habits and thoughts and all that makes you dissatisfied with your lot. My goodness, there's not much of a gospel in that, is there? That's it, a bit problematic, Zinzendorf. My goodness, what's going on? You know, he fought for his freedom in Europe and uh, freedom of speech, freedom to worship. When it gets out to the colonies, well, it kind of dries up. First problem then with colonial Christianity, it, it, it colludes. It makes Christianity a tool of empire and it reduces the lot of slaves to subservience you know subs there's no free there's no alternative basically you can be free in Christ but you're going to be in bondage physically deeply problematic in terms of what the Christian gospel is about but it gets worse you see there's enough to kind of ideologically manipulate the gospel and say to enslaved peoples this is what God intended for you people might read the Bible for themselves and say hold on a minute so what you do is you you rig the Bible you take out some of the pages you know, it's not for the campfire because you're cold. It's not one of those exercises. It's, you rig the Bible. In 1808, um, in Britain, they published what became known in the colonies as the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible is basically all the good bits of the Bible taken out. You know, so it, it begins with creation. That's about as good as it gets. Then they, the Hebrews go into bondage, enslavement in Egypt, and they never come out. That's it. They just have to be a few letters from Paul about being obedient, and that's it. So, you know, colonial Christianity not only says, look, this is as good as you'll get, they corrupt the text, and they make it so that Christianity becomes about two things in particular. One is that you can't change the way things are, and secondly, don't do any kind of critical thinking. You know, that's, um, uh, that's going to be left to us. I bet you didn't know they did that. That's in the, if you, if you get the chance, if you're retired and you've got a bit of time, a bit of money uh, to spare, because uh, you are the golden generation who still have um, uh, pensions, you know. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a museum in North America in Washington, the museum, the African American Museum, the Museum of African American History and Culture, where they have a whole floor um, which explores Christianity's engagement with enslavement and colonialism. That's where that picture comes from. So look, the key thing though is that not everybody took this on board. 
Everybody bought the idea that God supported enslavement and that the curse of Ham was a legitimate idea for dehumanizing people. Not everybody believed that. For example, on the right hand side, on the left, on the left hand side there, you have Sam Sharp. Sam Sharp was a Jamaican Baptist. I told you the Baptists come out of this quite well, you see, because the Baptists were quite subversive. They're having such a hard time in England and Europe. They had to kind of, uh, you know, when they went to the Caribbean, they really kind of flexed their muscles, you know, and tried to subvert what the Anglican Church and the Methodist Church were doing. So they would um, subvert the order. Their, one of their great acts of subversion was ensuring that their slave preachers could read and read the, the juicy parts of the Bible that maybe encouraged insurrection. That happened in Jamaica in 1831 when the Baptist minister Sam Sharp reads the biblical text, challenges the idea that the Bible is devoid of political concern. It's the opposite way. It says God is a God of freedom and justice and is concerned about this world. This is obviously in 1831, and it's an age before mobile phones, an age before accurate communication systems. There is no British telecom in 1831. So Sam Sharp says, look, what we're going to do is we're going to have a non-violent protest at Christmas. He spreads this across the island. But obviously, you know, Chinese whispers, by the time it reaches the next plantation, it's, we're going to have a non-violent protest. Next one, it becomes violent protest. Uh, so uh, obviously, it all kicks off in 1831, and uh, his rebellion is put down. But it demonstrates that nobody bought into colonial Christianity and the idea that God supported the subordination of African people. And I'm trying to work with that tradition, this tradition that comes from Sam Sharp that says God is a God of justice and that the church and politics are intimately interwoven. That's not a difficult statement to make from my location. If you come from the underside of history, where people have attempted to use the tradition to oppress you, well, obviously you're going to turn it on its head and say, hold on a minute, this uh, tradition can also be used to, to liberate people, to empower people, and of course God's got to be involved in the social affairs of people. Look at the situation in which we, we find ourselves in. So that's the tradition I'm trying to work with in terms of developing this new um, gospel music um, tradition. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Okay, um, right. Okay, yes, I think, just, 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 uh, let's see, uh, right, yes, okay, I'm just, I'm working through the images. So what kind of resources do we have for doing this then? Um, you know, uh, oops, let me just check. Oops, oh, oh, sorry, 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 let me just, um, whoops, I think I'm going the wrong way. Hold on, let me try again. Is it, sorry, am I go, I'm going the wrong way, hold on. There we go, there you go, yep. If I go back one, one, one more, am I going, no, I'm going the wrong way. There we go, okay. Okay, let's just check. I think I can go back one more. No, uh, I need to go back one more. Okay, is that where it was? Whoops. Whoops, there we go. I think that's it. Okay, oh, oops, hold on. Right, okay, there we go. So what are the resources then for developing this new gospel music tradition? So I normally use a, a Mac, and it's a little bit, it's a little finger thing, so it's slightly easier. What kind of tools do we need to develop this? Well, the first thing I decided to do was be contemporary, use contemporary urban music like contemporary gospel music does. So I started learning how to mix music in the studio. It's, it's great, you know, because uh, uh, when you have teenage children, 
and they're mixing music anyway. They do it on their phones, they do it on the iPad, you know. I, I kind of thought to myself, well, the kids can do it, surely I can do it, you know. And uh, I realized how difficult it was um, after a while. It isn't as easy as it, as it seems. So I started mixing music, learning how to work with them, technologize music as a resource for this new approach. The other approach, though, whoops, nope, no, it needs to go back. Hold on, nope, nope. Nope, hold on, let's see. Nope, that's not the way. Nope, 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 not that way. Nope, is it this way? Am I going the right way? Oops, oops, am I going the right way? Nope. <laughs> hold on. <coughs> Sorry, it's that way, is it, to go back? Oops, oops, careful, oops, careful. Oops, oops, oops. Yep. It should be a little arrow. Oh, right, okay. All right, okay. Right, okay. So if I... Oh, it's not come up. Oops. Yes, yes, I just need to go back to... Yeah, okay. Sorry about this. It's, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, in my church tradition, you see, they normally sing a chorus now to kind of help you, <laughs> help you with the embarrassment, you see. So, um, uh, but we're just, uh, but you see, the choruses can always be very political, <coughs> you see. The, the tradition is still retained, so you always have to work out what kind of chorus they're singing, you see. Because if they're singing a chorus which is kind of, help him, Lord, that means they're with you. You know, if they start singing a song about sacrifice and justice, you know you're in trouble, you know. So I'm, uh, right, yeah, here we go. Right, if we go back one, I think we'll be there. Right. Yep, there we go, yep, okay. So what I wanted to do was develop then a, a, contextual, a contextual musicology, a, a contextual theo-musicology, theology of music, and there were several resources for doing this. First resource was scripture. Obviously, if you're going to construct gospel music, you need to work with the scripture, but what I wanted to do was read the Bible stories politically, theologically, and as liberation theologians do. So I wanted to tell particular stories in song that would explore the socio-political world, that would be critical, because remember, as I mentioned before, colonial Christianity said two things to enslaved Africans, my forebears in the Caribbean. Don't think about your faith, you can't change the world. So I wanted to work against those two traditions as a way of decolonizing gospel music. But I used the Jamaican New Testament. Jamaican New, believe it or not, Bible societies where all their money goes, and Bible Society spent 10 years translating the Bible, the New Testament, into Jamaican, Jamaican patois. It was, it, patois is uh, not the right word to use anymore because this is the largest body of work translated in, Jama in Jamaican. So I wanted to use the Jamaican Bible, but sample it, use the audio, and, and, and foreground it as the voice of gospel music. So what I'm trying to do is say that the voice isn't really the accent, it isn't really the syntax, it's the primary driving theme and um, sound that you hear in gospel music becomes voice. So I, as you'll see, I sample bits of scripture from the Jamaican New Testament. And just in case you haven't heard the Jamaican New Testament, this is how it sounds when it's read. All I know when no say you need God. You know, every way. God bless you. The good thing them where God give. When him rule people life in every way, uno go get them. Allah wa ball now. God bless them. Cause the time I go come when God I go hush them and make them happy again. Allah humble themselves. God bless them. 
because you see the earth, and them people there are going to come get it. Oh, and the way in a guy is so bad that it coming like they are dead, they are dead for hungry, and they throw it dry like say they not drink water. How long? God bless you. Because you are going to get your know, belly full. You know, pardon people. God bless you. Know. Because you are going to pardon you know, too. All of you are going to do the sitting there and make God happy. God bless you. Know. Because one day, one day, you are know, going to get to see God. God bless all of you help people to live in a peace. Because people like them, they got to call them them. The people them where other people make suffer. Just cause they live, oh God want people to live. God bless you. Cause the good sitting there where God give, when he run people life, oh, him want run it. And them sitting there, we never get. God bless you. When people share you, when they make you suffer, and when they say all kind of wicked sitting about you, when you're true. But say it, just cause you follow me. Make on yourself. Okay, you get a sense of the Jamaican language uh, as it's translated, the, the translation into the New Testament there with the, uh, the reading there. Uh, oops, oops, the reading of the Beatitudes. Um, so, oops, am I going the right way? Yes. Yeah. Oops. So what, I'm, what I do is, let me, let's work with what I've got. I triangulate three things. The Jamaican New Testament, the theology of liberation, which comes out of my work, um, my previous work, in, um, uh, which explores political theology and also urban music. So these three things, are, the concepts, are, are triangulated to create this new genre. Um, right, and I'm going to show you now how it works together as, a, as, a, as a, an alternative gospel music. Let me explain this track first of all. So what I wanted to do was take the sample from the Jamaican New Testament, and I sample in this one, first, um, a, a, a John 1, 1, which is, um, no, John 1, 14, uh, uh, the word becoming flesh, but what I want to do is read that politically, so I thought to myself, well, the incarnation can mean a variety of things, but it can also imply that all flesh is good, that all humanity is good, so I then juxtapose that theological idea with the experience of my parents. When my parents came to this country in the 1950s, um, one of the signs that they saw on doors, particularly in London, not in Canterbury, end up here, but in, in London, I'm trying to big up Canterbury, you see, but you know, maybe they were there. But in London was, you know, the sign, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Tragically, with the kind of unleashing of anti-immigrant and racist sentiment with Brexit, this is reappearing in places, um, but not the Irish. Keep saying to my Irish friends, they're quite happy about that. It's just no blacks at the moment, so, you know, the Irish are getting let, let off the hook. So what I wanted to do was, was juxtapose that. So the song that we write explores the immigrant story of coming to Britain and the deferred gratification, the, the disappointment over the fact that there isn't this welcome in society or within the church. That's the song that we wrote. That's the new gospel song. But the visual... We wanted to, I wanted to explore the contemporary meaning of the incarnation. If all flesh is good, then why do we have particular problems which are entrenched, you know, entrenched forms of discrimination? How, 
what, what does God have to say about that? So what you see visually is a collage of images that relate to deaths in custody, um, tr where black people who have gone into prison or care homes die all of a sudden. And all of a sudden we go in very, very healthy, fit, athletic, into the police station, but then you come out dead for some reason. So I wanted to layer these two pieces of history from the 1950s and then the present, but in the song, raise the question about the meaning of the incarnation. And if you can follow the lyrics, what I, what I do is I critique the church by saying, on Christian theology, my own discipline, I say, maybe we've spent too much time thinking about the minutiae of the incarnation, the, the philosophy of the, the incarnation, and not spent enough time reflecting on the meaning, what it actually means in terms of the humanity and the equality of all, huma all humanity. If you're a big music fan, if you're a big fan of contemporary soul music, the musical style is uh, borrowed from a soul artist called Junior Giscombe. So I'm going to play you this, this track um, as an example of this new gospel music. In 1954, about 10,000 West Indians came to Britain. In 1955, it is believed another 15,000 will make the long journey. Already their coming has caused a national controversy, but one point must always be borne in mind. Whatever our feelings, we cannot deny the mention. For all our British citizens, and as such, are entitled to the identical rights of any member of the Empire. John Chapter 1 No one where the world turn man him come can live monks we can live monks we no the one where the world turn man him come can live monks we john 1 14 tells the story of jesus's incarnation that the word becomes flesh and lives amongst us it means that god who is fully god and fully man takes on human form the incarnation means that unequivocally all creation is good and that all flesh, no matter what color, no matter what tone, is good. My parents believed in this meaning of the incarnation, that their flesh was good. They were immigrants from Jamaica who came to work in Britain after the Second World War. But they soon came to realize that not everybody thought the same. When they went to look for places to live, they were greeted with signs that said, No blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. Sell five thousand miles with the sun great off behind me. They said it's gonna be a while till I feel that warm again. Staring at the gray skies as the cold wind starts to soak me. Faces that I recognize, but no one I call a friend. Just one place above how my father served before me. Still no wise about the days that lay ahead. Hands and feet are free, but shackled by economy. Just the possibility of a better life instead. Maybe if you give me time just to let me tell my story. Tell how I came to be in the land of hope and glory. Moment that I'm 
touch the ground, all I see is consternation. You never let me explain that I'm here by invitation. Came expecting arms to hold, and why? No blades, no Irish, and no dolls inside the sign. Much of the outcry against the immigrants arises from the Canada, which legally does not exist in Britain. Does not exist in Britain. In Kong, Kong live monks we. Kong live monks we. Five years, three days to go till I get back to my family. Tell I find a place to stay with the people playing games. There's a lot of empty rooms. I know I've got the Doesn't seem to be the same. Working from five to five, and the guides are always on me. Qualified to stay alive, never figured in my plans. Try to find a house to die, only made the people angry. Said to realize that I'm seen as less than just a man. Give me time just to let me tell my story. Tell how I came to be in the land of hope and glory. Moment then I touch the ground, all I see is consternation. You never let me explain that I'm here by invitation. The strange thing is that in church history, the brilliant minds of the church have spent a great deal of time trying to explain the doctrine of the incarnation that Jesus had to be fully God and had to be fully man and use that as a way of countering heresy but less time has been spent on the meaning of the incarnation and what it means to practice the equality of all humanity if the church had spent more time on the meaning and the practice of the incarnation we would have this terrible post-war story. No blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. children, people feel happy, 
You know, it's kind of like uh, the sugar, isn't it, at the end? What I'm trying to do there, you see, is represent a decolonized gospel music because on the one hand, we're critiquing theology. Colonial theology said, don't think about your faith. In the song, I'm challenging the way in which the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, has been thought through and practiced within church history. Colonial theology also said to African people, the gospel is not political. Well, I'm politicizing it here. I'm saying, well, hold on. If the incarnation is concerned with who can be saved and the fact that God dwells in all flesh, then how do we deal with the fact that some flesh is considered less worthy? You see, so it represents a decolonized form of gospel music. I'm yet to see anybody sing it in church, I must say, but you know, we're, we're still working on that. Okay, I'm going to give you another example. This one is a black feminist gospel song. Black feminism is otherwise known as womanist theology. So I wanted to write a womanist track in dialogue with womanist theologians. And again, what we're doing, what I'm doing with this is, this was a slightly different aesthetic. Um, I went to a dance company in Birmingham called Ace Dance Company. And, um, you know, as, as one does as a theologian, you know, I, I gave them a, a choreographed piece to perform. I didn't give them a choreographed piece. I didn't know what I was doing, but I said, this is how I think it should look, something like this. So they worked with it. They told me this is how modern dance takes place. So what we wanted to do is focus on a modern dancer, uh, somebody doing modern dance, but we didn't want to make it erotic or sexualized, but we wanted the woman to be dressed like a Jamaican national hero, a woman called Nanny of the Maroons, who, if you know your Jamaican history, in the early 18th century, there were, there were Africans who were never enslaved in Jamaica. They became known as Maroons, a corruption of the Spanish word for unruly rebels. And by 1729, the British had enough of them and said, look, go and live in that part of the island and leave us alone, except if there's a rebellion, you see. So if in Jamaica to this day, if you descend from the Maroons, you see, feel very happy and proud because your ancestors were, were never enslaved and fought this guerrilla warfare. So she's, she's dressed as a rebel fighter in Jamaican history. But what we sample is the Magnificat. If you know the Magnificat's history, the Magnificat is, on one level, about great reversals. God lifting up the lowly and pulling down the mighty. So we're kind of playing with that narrative of, of liberation and this liberation figure in, in, um, in Jamaican history, trying to make a connection between the tradition of the great reversal and this liberation figure who's a woman. But we don't just stop there, because one of the major issues in black women's lives concerns aesthetics, and in particular, how African or how European you look. And there's a polarity, and the polarity is political. And in this point, at this point in time, the pole towards looking as European as possible is kind of winning out with weaves in particular, you know, in terms of um, uh, dressing in a particular way that look, makes you look more European in the aesthetic. So what we wanted to do was push back on that and focus on an aesthetic that was, was Africanized. So I went to all the hair and beauty shows for black women, over the course of a year and asked women if who had natural hair and darker skin, the unpopular aesthetics, the great reversal tradition at work here, if I could take a picture of them. They said yes. Some said no, some said yes. So we insert those images within this to again layer 
the idea of resistance and of the magnificat, meaning the reversal in terms of aesthetic, the reversal in terms of black, women, black women's res resistance. But we don't stop there. Because, again, if you know anything about your popular music, you'll know that there's only one genre ever created in Britain just for black women. But he didn't know that. Somebody sat down and said, I'm going to create a musical form just for black women. What happened in the mid-1970s, in the early 1970s, you're as old as me, you'll remember that, well, you may not remember, but the only form of reggae music there was, which came out of Jamaica, was very masculinist. So if you went to a reggae dance in 1973, only the men were dancing. And that's kind of problematic if you want to get, make some money. You need the women there as well, you know? So Dennis Bovell, who was in London in the mid-1970s, said, I'm going to create a genre called Lover's Rock. And this will be a slower, softer version of reggae, which hopefully will bring the women out and will make more money. And it worked for Dennis Bobble. He invented this, this genre called Lover's Rock. So we use the genre of Lover's Rock in this song, again, to layer meaning. This is the only womanist genre, a genre created for black women in British history. We're using Nanny of the Moons, a revolutionary black female figure, the Magnificat, the song about great reversals, and we begin with a black woman who was at that point the chaplain in Parliament, she's now the Queen's chaplain, um, and we begin with her, uh, uh, um, Rose Hudson Wilkins, we begin with her talking about women and politics. So again, you see we're reading against this colonial tradition. Okay. Oops, let's go back, wrong way. Nope, that's not that one, let's go back, nope. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I believe we need to hear more women's voices in public life, in particular for the next generation. If we're going to change the dynamics of what we have today, where it is still sort of a man's world, then women today need to step forward to enable their children and their grandchildren, in particular girls, and actually boys too. Boys need to see that their counterparts can be equally respected in terms of the contribution that they bring to the table. Luke chapter one. Yeah, God bless woman. As the most powerful God, do the miracle here for me. In poorly, God put can't do I'm slavery chain to the chain reaction, oh yes. I'm a fighter, resistor, a daughter, a sister. I am a fraction of progress. Some don't lift a finger, but I ride the storm like the queen of Zynga. 
Because all through the process, trust me, it's mummy that knows best. Yo, we need justice and equal rights. Wanna rest in peace and we sleep at night. Fight for the children, they use and abuse them. The world of confusion, the love, so we lose them to the streets. When no one keeps their eyes out for them, no one to protect or vouch for them. Let's reach out to the mothers of the earth. We do more than give birth, let's show what we're worth. Im get hungry people, all eat up good sitting. But rich people, him send me with them too long hard. God help him serve at them, Israel. If members be good and kind to them. With a pen and a paper and strong mind I read for those who couldn't and there was a long line I'm sure poor the sky ain't the limit A jungle sometimes, I got a panther spirit A widow without a husband I'm free minds like Harriet Tubman The fact is, they deported and killed the activists But they're a part of us, so we are attached to this Teach our stories to the youth like a Nancy Defend our people like the queens of Ashanti Bridge the gap for future generations Download our history, make our own stations So many things left to be said And so many books left to be read We need to wake up the mentally dead We need to lead so we won't be led For young women today Who say that politics is rather boring And not for them I would like them to think of politics as something that is going to impact on their life, whether they like it or not. So in other words, they will need to ask themselves, do I want to just sit and have something done to me? Or do I want to be right there at the cutting edge, making decisions, contributing to the decisions? That's going to impact on society of which they are a part. I want to shout out all my womanists, Valentina Alexander, Caroline Redfern, Dulcie McKenzie, Maxine Howell, and Lynette Monnings. Let's go, let's go. Okay, so you can see what we're doing again there. What I'm trying to do is say, well, what, you know, what's the good news of the gospel? Well, the good news of the gospel isn't just for the men within the congregation. It's got to be good news for the women within the congregation. And how do we make sure that it's good news? We underline the revolutionary sentiment within the gospel message. And that, that's clear within the Magnificat where God is reversing the tradition. Well, what does reversal mean for people from the African diaspora? Well, one of the reversals is aesthetic and loving the aesthetic, the black aesthetic, which is often demeaned within British society and demeaned even within aspects of the black community. And again, reversing the tradition in terms of challenging you know, meaning, you know, because again, colonial Christianity said, don't think, you can't change the world. Well, we're, we're challenging the world here because we begin and end with the chaplain 
from the Parliament, from uh, the Queen, well, she's Queen's chaplains now, chaplain of Parliament, talking about the importance of women being involved in politics. So again, challenging, decolonizing gospel music. I think my time is up. I'm going I'm to be completely unpentecostal and uh, finish on time. I do have a couple of others, and maybe I'll slot them in at some point um, uh, if, if, if I'm uh, time affords. But I hope you get a sense of what I'm trying to do with this in terms of pr- pr- um, constructing an alternative gospel music tradition. Thank you. Thank you. That was... Uh Certainly a first, I think, in Canterbury. Um, So, any questions? Keith's going to... Good evening, and thank you for your talk. I think it was a new perspective for a lot of us, certainly for me. Um, I was delighted to think there's such vigorous and creative work going on, reassessing history and your part in it. What I would like to know is, are you aware of any original approach to God that could be described as an African theology, or does all religion exist only within Christianity and Islam? Sure, sure. Yes, there are African theologies. If you look at North Africa, the Egyptian Coptic tradition would say that they have a unique Christian experience because they were relatively untouched by missionary activity for a very long period and that what they developed was an African tradition. And then there are southern African theologians from South Africa, um, in particular Ghana, Nigeria as well in terms of West Africa, who would say that their theology is African because it, it emerges out of an African base. There's a kind of responsible syncretism which takes place between African culture, African philosophy, African um, history, and the biblical narrative. So, and, and, and I'd say a similar thing is happening here in terms of developing an African-Caribbean theology, which is a diasporic tradition, but weaving into, not even weaving, having a co- correlating with scripture, history, culture, experience and a different tradition to produce a distinctive theological uh, um, um, understanding. So yes, they would say there are African theologies and I would say there are African diaspora theologies as well. Thank you so much. I've, I've had the good fortune to be able to meet several East African theologians yep. and specifically I'm thinking of Professor Jesse Mugambi yep. from Kenya. Yeah. Uh, who was very upset for years that his best theological students, uh, even, you know, PhD level and so on, that the only place they could get their works published was in either Oxford or Cambridge or New York maybe, but that the editors of those works expunged anything that was African about the works. Yeah. So he took this up vehemently with them, and in fact now has started his own publishing company in Nairobi, and, and the university publishing houses mm. are agreeing to uh, distribute them yeah. for them. So now they are going to be genuine African theological yeah. publications. Sure, Thank yeah. You. I think there's also been a tradition of 
African scholars going to North America and publishing their work there and not being encumbered by any kind of politics. But what I would say as well is that we're all kind of complicit in that because one of the traditions which emerges from British colonialism within Africa, um, colonial history within the Caribbean, is what we call Afriphobia, the fear of all things African. You know, and it still haunts us today in, in the politics of representation, you know, the fear of black people, in hoodies in particular. There's this fear of blackness that we have to um, deconstruct and think through. And I would say that, you know, um, what you have in Oxford and Cambridge publishing to a degree is an extension of that Afriphobia. You could even go back to the Enlightenment and Hegel seeing nothing good and civilized within African culture and African history. So we're still trying to reconstruct um, and recover from that history. But you're right, yeah, there's a, there been a, a, a politics in publishing. Oh, don't all jump at once. See, we're not, we're not, see, see our, our students, you see, the stu students, um, I always, always say to them, we, we'll, we'll take a, we'll, I'll give them a prize for the best question, you see, so they're always, uh, and I believe you do the same thing tonight as well. I've been told that there's a thousand pounds for the best question, <laughs> donated by the Methodist Church. It's coming up now. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yes, yeah. Can yeah. you give me the thousand pounds first, please? Yeah, 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 we, yeah. we can do. I should say it's a thousand pounds of rice. Oh, that's, that's right. I love I forgot rice. to mention the end bit, yeah. So, super. Absolutely uh, delightful and um, uh, mind-blowing in some ways. Um, I was brought up in a colonial India during yep. the Raj. Yeah. And uh, I gather, I didn't learn it then, but I gather that the Magnificat was banned in Christian worship. Wow. It, it might encourage the Indians to rebel. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that, you know, and, and there are these revolutionary traditions within the biblical text, you know, um, you know not, not just in terms of the Magnificat, but the whole story of Luke and the way in which Jesus positions, well, the way in which the writer positions Jesus in relation to the poor, to the marginalized, and the women as well. It's a revolutionary uh, message. Um, so what I'm trying to do, though, is extend its meaning into the politics of aesthetics today, but also project back into history as well and to suggest that gospel music can explore these themes. And what happens, what happens if, to our Christian imagination if we begin to rethink the gospel as a transformative, so, you know, uh, having a transformative social message? And this message isn't just about individuals, it's for communities. And that's what I'm trying to do. And obviously, I'm doing it through visual culture because you, know, you write a book, if you're lucky, you might get um, into a second print run and maybe sell 5,000 copies or whatever before the library's taken. Well, you know, you get 5,000 hits in 10 minutes on the internet. You know, people use this work in different parts of the world. Young people have cut and pasted it and done various, you know, re reconfigured it. So it's just a, another way in which you, you get the message out and engage with the world beyond the academy. I wanted to ask you, I think you partly un ask, answered it already, what's been the reception and who is this for? And who, <coughs> where's, where's it going? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, my approach was to, as, as always with, with filmmaking as well, you make it for yourself. 
You know, so you make it for your own salvation. So my primary concern was the problem with contemporary gospel music and how do I change that. In terms of the audience, it's been quite varied. Um, mainly students of music, students of gospel music, people with a general interest in politics and, and music, but um, I'm still working on getting it into the, the church tradition. And uh, it's a struggle with the church tradition because justice doesn't pay. You know, the no justice pays within the church. And what I mean by that within black church tradition is songs that focus on neoliberal themes, individual blessing, individual well-being, um, you know, charity rather than structural change. Those kind of songs are uh, foregrounded and celebrated. Songs which are a bit more challenging, push people to think, well, that, you know, people aren't going to church to do too much thinking, I, you know, because I want an easy time. So that's where the struggle is. But the next um, development will be regarding the MOBOs, the Music of Black Origin Awards, takes place later on this year, and I'm going to try and push this as, uh, as, um, uh, for an award. And the way that you do it is you just drum up enough support. Think get all the university students to vote, we'll make it to the final. So you have to corrupt the system, basically, but that's the way it works. You know? Every, everybody does it. You, you get your friends, your family, everybody, you know, your institutions to vote. But what I'm hoping is that by doing that, we can again raise the profile. But ultimately, what I'm, all I'm trying to do is critique gospel. You know, and anybody who's interested in a counter-narrative will look at this work. There's a book that will be out in uh, 2021, which is called Decolonizing Gospel Music, which is really the theory behind this, the, the theomusicology, the ideas that inform uh, the critique of gospel. So there'll be a book, but, you know, that's for the academy, and, you, and the academy's neoliberal. It's a business, so you write the book to keep your job. What I'm trying to do here is at least remain true to the, you know, the, um, the you know, political theology by creating work that people will engage with and using, using visual media um, to, to engage with a wider audience. Um, actually, my question is pretty well the same as the previous one. Um, you know, I was wondering who your target audience is. Yeah. Um, is it in a sense, people like us, um, you know, sort of white, sure. stodgy, conventional, yeah. who need shaking up a great deal, um, or because you presented it as a critique of traditional yeah. gospel music, mm. are you actually getting at gospel music making in this country and in other countries? Um, the image came to mind as you were talking just occasionally when there's not very much to watch on the television. I go to one of these religious channels. Yep. And you can see um, you've got a huge choice of enormous churches in America, yep. you know, with two, two and a half thousand people. Fantastic gospel choirs. Mm. Um, you know, just the sheer liveliness, the sheer vibrancy yep. of it is just absolutely dramatic. Would people singing in those kinds of choirs have any kind of connection or understanding with what you've been saying? Are you, are sure. you targeting them sure. as much as you're targeting us? Sure. Let me answer that by not answering it slightly, by saying, quoting two people, Steve Biko said, one of his books is, I write what I like. You write because it's on your heart and because you think you've got a message. So on the one hand, I do that as an auteur. You just get it out of your system. It's your own therapy. 
Cornel West, the Harvard philosopher, um, promotes a new form of prophetic thought in his writings. So on the other hand, I'm trying to be prophetic in the 8th century prophetic tradition where you speak truth to power. So I'm trying to speak truth to power wherever that power is, whether it be the church context and the inability to evolve gospel music into something much more comprehensive, or the colonial context of post-colonial, well, the context of post-colonial Britain and the inability to reckon with this particular history and adapt it to our thinking about church theology mission. So it's being prophetic in that sense. And really, you know, you know in this day and age, you can be postmodern about your marketing and say, there is no market. You just put it out there and see what happens, you know. And my sister is a consultant in marketing, you see. So she comes up with all these fantastic strategies, and I've avoided all of them, you know, in order to say, look, I'm going to be completely, we just have to be postmodern. There is no audience. You create the audience by being prophetic and see, seeing who will engage, engage with you. And I learned that to a degree from television. In television, we did the same thing. It was a golden period in Channel 4 during the early noughties to about 2009. We could make whatever you want. And the intriguing thing was that programs that we just made for our own, of our own interest, people would be really either rattled by or engaged with. And I, I made this one film where afterwards, I got a phone call from a gang leader. And he said, I have 200 soldiers I didn't know what he was talking about, you know, I think, well, you know, soldiers, what is this, military? You know, what's going on? And he said, I've got 200 soldiers, 200 people in the gang, and we're following you. What's the next move? And I was terrified. I said, my goodness, it's just a film. What's going on? <coughs> but it wasn't just a film, you know. It was because we wanted to address certain issues, and we were hoping that people would engage. So I, I work on that basis. I'm hoping that anyone who's interested in going back to the spirituals and, and finding a dynamic equivalent of the spirituals will be interested. People who are working in choirs or who are producing gospel music will be challenged, and that's happened to a degree. I've worked with um, London Community Gospel Choir's lead, uh, Basil Mead, and discussed these issues. In fact, you know, if you know anything about universities and the REF process and impact, he's helping with our impact statement. But so, and they're interested, they get it because they, they aren't aware of this history, history. But I'm also interested in terms of mission. How do we express and articulate the gospel in a context that is deeply political. You can't be apolitical for me. You have to address these issues. Theologically, uh, Metz talks about dangerous memories and how dangerous memories from the past can inform the present and transform us and enable us not to make mistakes of the past. So I'm trying to work on all of these levels, really, you know, and, and, and seeing where it leads. It's pragmatic, you know, and I don't think you can ever just target a particular segment. I can tell you one thing, my kids don't like it. They're teenagers. They think, Dad, you're 12 for this stuff. <coughs> so I can tell you that one thing. That, 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 that market just hasn't worked. The kids don't like it. They don't listen to it. They switch it off. So um, I think there might be other things, other variables at work there, you know, um, that I'm going on. Trying to listen and absorb what you're saying. If I can be so bold to speak for uh, middle-class, colonized Methodists and other Christians. Mm. 
I suspect that I will have to spend a lot of time listening to what you have said as a kind of continuing repeat discussion. But the one thing that is challenging is this. The gospel is political. Don't try and, ob and, and, uh, and, and duck that. There's a whole sense in which so many conversations that I have the privilege to listen into and to share within the church is about colonial Christianity mm. or colonized Christianity. And when we go back and listen to the scholars who are talking about the history of the gospel, it's political. Where do we go from here mm. as church? Sure, sure. I think it's a really good question. Um, I, I would uh, affirm everything that you said. Um, you may be aware that in universities at the moment there is a student movement to decolonize the curriculum because they recognize that what has been produced as knowledge isn't really knowledge universally. It's one particular knowledge system within the whole of the world. So they're interested in learning other knowledge systems to compare and contrast. This is an ongoing debate within universities in particular. I think within the church, it's only, just historically, North America, as, as per usual, you know, it's always happened, it's a bit like business. We develop an idea in Britain, but the Americans kind of run with it, you know. And that's happened with whiteness studies, whiteness studies within Britain in the early 1990s. Richard Dyer writes a book which is an attempt to unpack colonialism in, in, in terms of art, the aesthetics, in terms of film. It goes to North America, becomes a big discipline. The same thing has happened with decolonizing theology. There were people here raising those questions in the 1970s, 1980s. The Americans kind of ran with it. And what they have attempted to do is decolonize the church. And that begins with rethinking church history. You know, and as I said before, there's this big gap in church history. You know, and we, we think that that gap was just about mission. And we don't think about how the gospel was corrupted to collude and how as a consequence of that, we haven't exorcised ourselves from that past because we haven't thought about what needs to change within our theology because we haven't reflected on it critically and therefore we continue with a colonized form of Christianity and I've critiqued the black church tradition for that you know it's the tradition I come out of and I know that you know some of my PhD students have written for the wider church to raise those kind of questions but it is an ongoing debate but it's a troubling one because it disturbs everything we've been told about British history you know, I'm, uh, you know, so I, 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 look, I'll do a bit of name dropping if you like, you know, but my current film project, it'll be the last one I'll make, you know, and uh, they, they won't allow me back on. I mean, I'll be, you know, I'll be lucky if they, if they give me a gig on this one. But my current project, I've just written a four-part series for Lenny Henry. And it's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. He invites me to great parties, but I'm too old to go. But he's older than me, you know, but I'm thinking, I, I've got my corns to sort out tonight. I'm not going out partying. Too old for that. Uh, but um, the film that we're working on, the film that I've written, is a human history of British slavery. And we're doing this because we want to re-educate people on how that past is intimately interwoven with cultural politics today. You know? And the church is in, you know, here's the good news. The good news is you have, within the Bible, 
a challenge to that. The, bi the biblical text is deeply multicultural, deeply, at times, imperial, but also challenges to empire. It's being contested throughout the text. So we have a powerful resource and a powerful tradition for an ongoing dialogue. So I would say, yes, you, you have to, it's not, it's not a one-off. You then have to create, it's like feminist politics, you know, and feminist theology. Then you have to start rethinking, well, why are we singing these hymns? Well, these hymns, uh, who, who's, who's being foregrounded in these songs about the men? What about all this militaristic stuff? Hold on a minute. Where, where is the, how are we reading the Bible so that it legitimates the status quo rather than challenging it, you know? The stranger in the land is always looked after in the Hebrew Bible, you know? We're kind of ejecting the strangers in the land at this point in time. We have built a whole debate around Brexit around being anti-biblical. Get rid of the strangers in the land, you know. I'm not, not welcome them in. Forget the Hebrew Bible. Oh, Jesus was a refugee. Well, hold on a minute. Oh, yeah, all that kind of stuff gets, um, you know, so we've got this kind of anti-imperial sentiment within the biblical text. And it's whether or not we want that to, to rise to the top or we want to, to subdue it. That's the, that's the challenge. So, yes, it's an ongoing debate and discussion. And it may be that it is just a prophetic tradition. And you have to recognize that the church struggles to move in that direction because we've, we've created a, a lifestyle club rather than a revolutionary movement. That's, that's all right. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You've obviously got a tremendous challenge sure. to decolonize the mindset in which Jamaicans have grown up. And yeah. This challenge you have faced. One of the experiences that seem to us most important is the way in which Pentecostalism has changed the mindset of Brazilians. And yeah. I wonder if that has yeah. influenced your thinking. Um, not necessarily, but I am familiar with Brazilian Pentecostalism. And it does have some, of the, some similar problems in terms of the, the music culture. Pentecostalism, contemporary Pentecostalism, the real powerhouse for this tradition is North America. North American Pentecostalism is folded into American capitalism. You know, so therefore, the songs don't challenge the status quo. They go along with it. And that is exported to Brazil. Now, the great thing about Pentecostalism is you can make money out of it. Now, it's not like the Methodist church. Now, you can get very, very rich. Pentecostalism. We, we, tried to make a part, we tried to make a program a few years ago, but it didn't work out. It's called the world's 10 richest pastors. And, you know, four of them were in Nigeria, the other six in North America. And we only wanted pastors who were making over $10 million a year. You know, pastor making over $10 million a year. It sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? You're in the wrong business if you're a Methodist or an Anglican. Get Pentecostal. That's where the money is, you know. So, we, um, uh, you know, the other side of it is the market has intruded into the church so that it becomes even more difficult to be non-market and have values which are non-market. So that's very much part of Brazilian Pentecostalism. I was out there a few years back doing a little bit of research, but, but researching other things within Brazilian um, uh, religious life, not necessarily Pentecostal churches, but I did visit a few Pentecostal churches. But yes, had a massive impact on, um, uh, you know, so there is a correspondence in terms of the music, but there are other variables working in the Brazilian context, like... Um, the shift to the right in terms of Pentecostalism. So it's been hijacked by the right. It has supported the suppression of indigenous people rather than the liberation of indigenous people. So it's in a problematic space 
in terms of Brazil. If you know the Universal Church, the largest Brazilian Pentecostal denomination, works as a mini-corporation. It's not, much, not that much different from Walmart, you know, in terms of how they operate. So it's problematic because if everybody pays their tithes, you see, as a way of funding the church, and then you have special offerings on top of that, it brings a lot of money into the church, and that money can be liberative, but it can also be quite corrupting as well. So again, what I'm trying to do is, is work against that, you see, and say, well, hold on a minute, what, what happens if we, have a, uh, if, we, if we go with the revolutionary tradition within gospel, that we decolonize this tradition, then we come up with a different hymnody, a different set of values that we work into our songs about God. And some of the songs, actually, are just based on things that happened in Birmingham. So I'll just give you another example. This, this song that I didn't get a chance to, to show you was, was actually about something that happened in Birmingham <coughs> four years ago. The church that I was attending, I'm, I'm partly Baptist, partly Pentecostal, because I'm not sure which one God is just yet. You know, where, where some, I'm hedging my bets. So I alternate between a Baptist church and a Pentecostal church. Pentecostal church I go to um, is in the... the, the uh, 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 more, uh, a run-down part of town. The Baptist church is much more affluent. So my kids kind of go run-down, affluent every week, uh, the alternative weeks. They get a, a two sides of um, the city in which they live in. And in the, in the Pentecostal church, there's a warehouse across the road. And this warehouse is sometimes a warehouse, sometimes it's converted into other things, like a partying place. Well, I went there one morning, and it had been converted into a gentleman's club. You know, gentlemen's club, which is really lap dancing club. I don't know. If, I think maybe they don't have many in Canterbury. I don't know. Maybe they've uh, all disappeared. Uh, they've all been, all been closed down. But in Birmingham, Birmingham is the lap dancing capital of Britain. More lap dancing clubs in Birmingham than you're missing your, half your life. You want to move to Birmingham? You want to want to see what's happening in the city? Uh, it's a lap dancing centre of, um, of 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 Britain. More lap dancing clubs in Birmingham than anywhere else. And you know what that brings? Exploitation. So, uh, going to this church, I said to the pastor, I said, uh, it's a lap dancing club. The chances are they're trafficking young people there, young women, you know, if we know what's happening, you know, what's happening in other parts of the city. And he said to me, we know, and we know it's the Eastern European mafia, and we're not going to mess with them. He said, if you want to mess with them, and you want to get shot up, that's your business. So I thought, uh, good, if your pastor gives you that advice, you've got to take it. You know, but I thought, well, I'm not going to take it completely. Uh, so what I did instead was write a song about it. And I, said, I thought, well, what would happen if the pastor actually addressed the issue? So this track is called The Work of the Spirit. And what, we, what I argue is that I look at two images of the Spirit in the New Testament, one where it's a defensive force and one where, it, where it's restraining, you know, in 1 Thessalonians, where it's restraining and holding back evil, and the other in John where it's an, an assertive force, where it's challenging and protecting and, um, and being much more dynamic. And I use those images then to retell the story of what happened with the gentlemen's club but on this occasion they actually rescued the women rather than act, rather than doing absolutely nothing so i could imagine it but i, I didn't want to risk getting shot just yet by the eastern european mafia so it became a song but then the song inspired me to take it a little bit further so i ended up writing a four-part radio series it's called jesus peace and it's about a pastor who is confronted with this situation rescues the person it's a detective story you see 
He ends up being charged with a murder because one of the young women is killed. He rescues the police, try to do him in, and he has to therefore go back into his past life as a, as a bad person in order to prove that it wasn't him. But it spawned basically two creative enterprises. One, the music video, and this other four-part radio series for BBC Radio 4. But again, what I'm trying to do is say, what's the work of the spirit within the world? Is it just within the Pentecostal tradition to fill individual vessels, you know, and give us supernatural, ecstatic experiences? Or is the work of the Spirit within the world justice? And if it is justice, how should that be imagined and played out within the life of the church? You cannot be passive in the face of injustice when it's across the road. In the radio drama, I think I come up with a better practice because in the radio drama, the church is charismaniac they're kind of serious charismatics so when they see the problem you see they do what charismatic people do they go outside surround the building hold hands and pray in the spirit you see and uh, that's what causes the people inside to think these people are crazy and they let the women go free so i um, you know, i think i came up with a better strategy in the drama than within the within the music video but again you see asking the question how can gospel music transform the Christian imagination. What do we do in the face of justice, injustice? Well, we've got, we've got to act. We've got to, this is the work of the Spirit. So that, that's one of the tracks on, on the um, uh, album as well. And they're all free to download. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an old school Pentecostal venture, which means you make no money out of it, basically. So it's, um, all, the album is free to download online, as are the uh, music um, videos. Hi, I'm not quite sure where this question is going, but um, sure. it, it's a bit of a preamble. I grew up in South London in the early 70s, so as one of only two white girls in my class, so yeah. Dennis Bavel, Lovers Rock, was all part of my growing there you up. Go. You know, there, you there, so, yeah. there you go, there you go. So when I mentioned Junior Giscombe um, as well, you'd have a rough idea. Yeah, yeah Stratham, right, Stratham yeah. so yeah, yeah. There you go, very, yeah, very much good. so. Yeah. Good stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, the girls in my class felt they used things like double burden, double slave, because they were women and yeah. they were black. Yeah. So they were, they, were, they were black, not white, yeah. disadvantaged. They were women, yeah. not men, disadvantaged. Yeah. Um, a lot of their parents came over on the Windrush. Yeah. My mum's German. Mm. Um, only two of my grandparents are British, only one great-parent's British. I have a British passport, but kind of on a very delicate, sort of wobbly bit. Yeah. Basically, they were more entitled to be in the country than I was. Yeah. Yet they were constantly harassed. I never was. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering if the situation has changed because they felt, and I wasn't a Christian at the time, God had nothing to say to them. God yeah. was male. God was white. Yeah. Yeah. And there was nothing about Christianity that was for them. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, these people who might feel Oops, the sorry. same disadvantage this time, could sorry. this music reach out to them that... It, not so much in a Christian context, in a secular context, could people hear this music and think, yeah, actually God is for me. Yes. God is relevant to my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that's part of the, the, the missiological focus of the project is to say, look, every, every image of Jesus is a reconstruction, isn't it? You know, that Jesus, the Jesus of history becomes a Christ of faith. The Christ of, of faith is who Jesus is for us. You know, we have a dialogue between who we imagine Christ to be and the historical Jesus and hopefully keep them quite close together. The problem has been that only one image has been seen as normative. 
you know, the Aryan Jesus, which you have a lot of fun with if you're working in Jewish context, you know, because how do you make a first century Jew a 20th century Aryan? You know, something kind of funny going on there, funky even going on there. So what I've attempted to do with this project is recontextualize the gospel within the context of the Caribbean diaspora, but hoping that it will speak afresh to people both inside and outside of the church. And, um, you know, in terms of the former students I've, I've got who've listened to it who aren't Christian, they can engage with the politics, but they still struggle, um, particularly within this post-colonial, decolonized age where people are just much more aware of how the gospel has been whitened it's a real struggle to move in this direction so what i'm trying to do you know is make them you know the only way i can do this is you make them aware of the the tradition from below which i mentioned at the beginning with sam sharp and that's the tradition i tend to talk about when i when i'm in african caribbean churches that there is this alternative way of reading the bible and that that alternative way is is, is much more liberative the church is a women's movement. You know, so lots of women, lots of black women have found a home within the church. I just don't think that they've worked through the double jeopardy in terms of race and gender. I think they've sacrificed those themes in order to just have a spiritual Jesus rather than a Jesus that addresses all of these issues. So there's still an ongoing struggle. You know. um, my approach to it, though, is I, my, per, my personal approach to it. I mean, I mean uh, my, my day job is teaching. I'm Jamaican, so you always have more than one job as a Jamaican. That's kind of a tradition. But my other, my other work is I, I do a lot of prison um, teaching. I'm teaching a prison as well. And what I found through, I've worked as a, uh, in prison ministry for the last 15 years. What I found is that young offenders in particular, even some incarcerated men, are less interested in the paraphernalia of church, the worship, the doctrine, the preaching, and I'm much more interested in the practice, you know, and one of my ambitions, you know, is um, to develop a religious, a church space that is just fundamentally about practicing faith, you know, because, so I think that may be the way into it, and, what I'm tr- and, and if, if that is a way into mission, where it's less about proclamation in word, but proclamation in action, then I'm hoping that the videos that combine thought and action will be a way to connect with that group, with that demographic. But I'm glad that you got my Dennis Bovel and you saw the Lover's Rock thing working through it there. Fantastic. Well, we do, with, with one of the tracks, we get into grime. One of them is a grime track as well. So, um, you know, it's more up to date in terms of grime, uh, which is South London version of hip hop. We have a couple of grime, well, I have one grime track on there as well. Now you're never too old to start listening to this music. You do know that. You do know there is no age restriction. So I will encourage you tonight um, to start, well, listen, if you've got, the, you've got your, your internet, start reading up on grime and the history of grime. It's very important because it's South London hip-hop. Read up on soul music. The, you know what? These things are important because you learn about people through their music. You know, and if faith is in part about hearing stories, then you hear the stories of people through their music. That's really vitally important. You know, and that's, I, I would encourage, listen, if you're retired, you've got plenty, you've got no excuse. You, get, you, you, you can get through the canon in a weekend, you know, I'm, uh, you know but, it's part, but it's part of the process. And hey, here's the thing, you know, um, 
as my kids often say to me, they say, Dad, you know, um, because my, obviously kids grow up with a liberation theologian, and they're kind of, they're kind of raised with the, with the politics all around them, but they always, my kids say, look, we have to learn that stuff and our stuff, but they only have to learn their stuff. And I always say to them, well, that's not justice. Justice is learning everybody's stuff. Because if you want to relate to people, you have to, you have to know where they're coming from. You have to know their history, their culture, their background. That's what it means to be, to be the children of God. We embrace everybody because we're interested in everybody. And I think this is partly what I'm attempting to do with the wider audience. I'm saying, engage with this history. You know, after all, it's your history. Stuart Hall, great dean of British sociology, used to say, I'm here because you were there. Do you not know what happened out there? One more, and then we'll, then we'll, then we'll, go, we'll get the football. We'll uh, get to the second half, at least. Manchester City. And maybe the last 15 overs of the cricket. Talking of the history, I wonder how you felt about the movement to remove colonial statues such as Rhodes, and whether you think that... Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm in the problematic oh. camp because I don't think you can sanitise history. You know, I, I really don't think you can, but what you can do is provide a counter-history. So I would prefer to erect another statue, maybe of somebody Rhodes had killed, um, you know, or one of the massacres, that hit that, 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 and say, let's, let's think about this history now in a more complex way. And I think only when you've done that kind of work can you really move people in one way or the other. So I don't think you can sanitise it. Um, similarly with um, Bristol Cathedral, and the stained glass window, the Colson stained glass window. Colson sends 10,000 slaves to their death in the Leeward, Windward Islands. You know, makes a mint from it, makes a huge fortune. There's some work with the poor in Bristol as redemption builds a beautiful stained glass window in the church. You've got to then ask yourself, people in the church, how do you worship God when you've got a stained glass window which is paid for with the profits of genocide? You know, how do you praise God within that? Jesus, we love you, you're wonderful, you're Lord of all. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's complicated. It's like, um, you know, going to a wedding, you've got your wife and three of your girl, old girlfriends turn up. It's uncomfortable. I've been there. You've got to watch out which ones you go to. You know, it's a bit uncomfortable, that kind of thing. So you've you got to work out, you know, uh, what, you know you got, you, you. so I, I think that with the Colson window, I was involved in that debate and I said we should have an artist produce some kind of installation that goes alongside the window because, we sh because there is a danger of forgetting. And while I understand that, you can pull the statues down and put something else up which represents where we are now, I don't think that's good his history. I don't think it's good historiography in terms of method. I think you have to tell the complete story and allow that memory to sink into us and enable us to think about who we are and where we're going. So I'm not, I can, I, I, I get it, roads must fall, you know, I get what they were doing in South Africa where it's really, and in North America where many of these statues are symbols of oppression, but I think you have to then, as I said, you provide the counter-narrative and, and at least have people think about it in this context. If I was in the American South, and every day I walked past General Lee statue, and I knew that statue was put up there to intimidate me, I'd want it pulled down. 
So I get it in that sense. But what do you replace it with? And how do you keep that memory of what they were trying to do alive so that it challenges you to live in a different way in the present? It's, it's, it, it, so that's where I'm, somewhere in the middle. Since 2007 and before, there has been a project called Memorial 2007 yeah. to raise a monument to slavery, yeah. to slaves, yeah. in Hyde Park, in yeah. the Rose Garden. That's right. All the permissions are there, the sculpture has been approved, yeah. everything has been, but no one will produce any money for it. Well, and yet yeah. they give the government's given 50 million yeah. pounds for a yet another Holocaust memorial, yep. only a hundred yards from the one in the, That's right. in the Army Museum and so on, that, and they won't produce, no one will produce any money yep. for this wonderful slavery, anti-slavery yep. monument in Hyde Park. I think you're completely right, and in fact, part four of the film that I've written for Lenny is about that. How do we memorialize this? And we go to Hyde Park, we talk through that history, and what Lenny is keen to do is to get people to, to, to actually contribute, you know, industry who benefited to contribute to that. So, so we're trying to do that. I made a film which is still on YouTube. It's called The Empire Pays Back. And in that, I, I explore reparations, biblical theme. When wrong is done, how do you repair the damage? And sometimes that damage is, that repair is psychosocial. It's about um, peace, shalom. Sometimes it's um, financial. You repair financially, you compensate for what's happening. At the end of the film, I do a quick tour of London to show that there are memorials for everything except this missing 300, 400-year history. There are memorials to horses that died in the war in London, but no memorial to a, a part of British history, which wasn't just about the tragedy. We all got rich from it. You know, Bristol, you know, Liverpool was a sleepy nowhere. You know, some people might say it's still a sleepy nowhere. But, you know, Liverpool was nothing. But it had this deep port, became incredibly rich. Bristol became incredibly rich. You know, London benefited. You're looking at the slave plantations enriching the economy in the same way that the IT industry does today. About 12, 13% of the whole economy gaining from this, you know, one, one adventure plus we live with the legacy in terms of racial hierarchy. You know, so all of that is still, we're still bound up with it. And unless we develop a language and a understanding, we don't move on. You know, that's part of it. There's a movement called the Movement for Justice and Reconciliation, which is an ecumenical group, which are attempting to do this. They are, you know, that's their, 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 their mission. But you're completely right. How we memorialize it is deeply, you know, it's... It, 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 yeah, 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 it's all, it's all there. But also as well, um, in London they have um, uh, history walks where they do some of this. They're, they're starting one in Birmingham as well. But just to make people aware that there are these missing parts of our history, which we've, let's be honest, we were lied about in school. You know, we're told lies about this, this history and we need to therefore re rethink it, reconstruct it. And memorialising it is one way in which you, you, can, you can at least attempt to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I don't know quite what to say except wow after all of that. I've 
always said I like learning new things. I've learnt so much tonight from the word MOBO onwards, that's going to be my new word <coughs> that I must use. I found myself from very early on making parallels with feminist mm. insights from the slave Bible mm. to the women we read past from the Hebrew midwives to the women disciples of mm, Jesus. Mm, I don't need to tell you all mm, of this. Mm. It is such a vast field, and you've opened it up for us. And I know you want to get back to watch the football. Oh, no, 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 I'm good, no, I'm good. <laughs> it's not my team. Oh, oh, right. <laughs> but I really just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for being a prophet, for being practice-based, and for changing our perceptions. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.